0: Welcome to The Leaders Who Care, a podcast powered by Dynamics Group. We are here to give the stage and support to those committed to create a positive and lasting impact way beyond the profits and margins, the leaders of the world who care for others and serve a bigger purpose. Join us on the journey of creating a better, more caring world. And now to your host, Marian Timelkov.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm super excited today to welcome uh, A very special guest uh, joining us from... uh, John, you mentioned you're joining us from uh, Los Angeles today, very early for you, but thank you for making the time um, to join the Leaders Who Care. As you guys know, we are on a mission to bring together some of the most caring leaders from every corner of the world. And today we have the honor to welcome Jean-Paul Rollet. Jean-Paul, thank you for making the time and welcome all the Leaders Who Care. Well, Marion, I can't think
2: of a better reason to get up early than to join you. So I'm delighted to be here.
1: Oh, fantastic, John. Well, I have so many questions to ask you. But, uh, John, if we look at um, uh, what what you have done and I had a a privilege to look back and what you've accomplished, it is um, really what does it take when you look at your journey and what inspired you to really get to the very top? I mean, Harvard University, University of Chicago, some of the world leading universities and um, pursue that passion for ethical leadership. And, and so maybe starting with your brief uh, journey on, on your major milestones that led to this inspiration to what you do today. Absolutely.
2: Uh, so as someone who uh, grew up for uh, much of his life when he was a young person, in a rural part of this country, uh, in Michigan, on an apple farm. I'm the sixth generation of my family to be there. Uh, I had somewhat unlikely beginnings, um, not coming from a kind of traditional city. But growing up on that apple farm and spending time there, of course, I think like a lot of young people, I had big dreams and saw the obvious way of pursuing those dreams is in going to a major university. And I was fortunate enough to be accepted to Harvard University and attended Harvard College. And while I was there, I guess in the broadest sense, I really devoted myself to the humanities, to the liberal arts, and had the opportunity to kind of read widely, to dig into history and literature and philosophy. And while I was doing that, I I, I found that great passion, but I wanted to find a way to apply what it was I was reading in these wonderful books to address kind of contemporary questions and concerns. I have a great admiration for so many of the academics that I've known, but I wanted to find a way to apply that to teaching to kind of change people's lives. And so after a time, I found that the obvious way to do that was first by teaching ethics. I began by teaching business ethics starting at Harvard University in 2005. And then a couple of years later, added on a leadership class that I've now taught Since uh, 2008 and for me teaching in both of these areas ethics and leadership allowed me to apply a lot of the major ideas and the great works that I had spent so much time thinking about but to use what kind of great works of literature can teach us in order to think through questions to me like leadership and ethics that uh, have a kind of practical application each and every day. And at the same time, what I found is that by committing myself to teaching, I was having this extraordinary opportunity that you know well to interact with young people, to find ways to connect with them and inspire them, and in my own small way to help contribute to the next generation of leadership. And so for me, that's the path that I took that at least brought me to become a teacher and a writer and someone committed to leadership and ethics. And uh, while maybe every choice in my life hasn't been the right one, I think those choices that I've just shared were.
1: Fantastic. Well, John, it's uh, really a lot of young people today um, have so much. We live in the best times ever, um, and uh, there's so much choice. But at the same time, uh, because of that choice, because of all this uh, uh, pressure from parents, from peer groups, young people um, don't know exactly what they want to do. And neither some of them, most of them don't even know how to find out what they want to do. Um, if you look back, uh, John, into your journey and how did you kind of uh, unveiled and, and discovered your passion, what would be your advice to that, uh, to your 20, 20 years uh, old yourself? Uh, you know, when uh, when you look back, what, what would you advise yourself to do or, you know, for the young people today that don't know exactly what they want to do, how to uh, how to discover what they want to do? So if I were to go back to my 20 year old self, I would
2: say in one respect you're doing it right and in another respect you could maybe do better. So let me distinguish between the two. What I would say to my 20 year old self that I think I was doing right at the time and it's a piece of advice that I give to my students is that you need to engage the world with a sense of real intellectual curiosity. Uh, You know, Marion, you said that we're living in this extraordinary time when all of these resources are at our fingertips. And the more intellectual curiosity we have, the more resources we're willing to explore, the more we're willing to look at the world around us, which I admit becomes harder and harder because technology is always competing for our attention, the more we're going to quickly find out in an intelligent way what it is we want to do with our lives, what are the resources we want to take advantage of, and what are the paths we need to explore. I think when I was 20 years old, I was pretty good at that. I was able to um, you know, look around, find those resources. I had that intellectual curiosity. I think I was doing that right. Now, what was I doing wrong or at least could have been doing better? And that is, I was probably too impatient for my own good. I think when you're 20 mm-hmm. years old, you have this sense that you have to answer all of these questions immediately. And look, obviously you wanna keep having a sense of moving forward, a forward momentum. But I think you can also slow down, and this is part of intellectual curiosity, dig in a little bit. You don't have to solve every question about your life by the time you're 22. And in fact, most of my friends who felt as though they had solved every question by the time they were 22, ended up learning that they were wrong. I was maybe a little bit in too much of a hurry for my own good. And I think being in a hurry can work against that spirit of intellectual curiosity. So I don't want to say that you need to either give up your ambitions or stop moving ahead, but you have time to kind of search around. A metaphor that was given to me when I was just a little bit older than that, which I've always quite liked, is you can think of your career very much like a rocket on a launch pad. Mm-hmm. And if you if you think about a rocket on a launch pad, think of how large those boosters are and how much gas has to go in to get, get the rocket off the launch pad. And a friend of mine said, the larger the boosters, the longer it takes to fill up those tanks and the farther you're ultimately able to go. And so by slowing down, looking around, taking your time, what you're doing is you're filling up larger boosters and that allows you to take off with greater thrust and ultimately go farther. I've always liked that metaphor. And it's one that I've tried to impart to my students in a way in which I've challenged them to think about their own lives.
1: What I've never heard that before, Jean-Paul, and thank you for sharing. It's fantastic. Well, absolutely, the knowledge is power, and you're filling up your your boosters. And I think your 20s, you absolutely, um, I would do the same, you know, explore a lot of things, and I've been blessed to probably naturally do a lot of those things when I was in my 20s, and then uh, eventually uh, figure out what what really excites you most and uh, marry that with your strengths. And I think something, uh, something great could come out of it. So uh, what a great uh, metaphor and sharing that story. And John, looking and then moving forward, OK, so young people just going through that journey because it's one thing I think that the reason why they r- rush or hurry a lot is because they want immediate gratification. It's mainly linked to a lot of the technology uh, changes and how we are influenced by it as well. There's an impact. Um, how, um, what do you think young people can do to learn to be patient with themselves? Because I think that's a, that's a major one for them. Well, Marion, you're exactly right. I mean, if I look back
2: on my uh, high school experience and my, my college experience, uh, you know, of course, I had the internet in my case for the first time. I had email for the first time. But I didn't have cell phones. There were no tweets. There were no Facebook. There weren't all of these technologies competing for my attention. So it was a little bit easier to not be distracted. So that was one element of my life that was a little bit different than it is for students today. But the other element is that I think that I was able in um, not, not always the most successful, but I was able to think about the ways in which I could make incremental progress toward goals that were valuable to me. You know, my parents often tried to communicate to me that any goal worth working toward takes time, right? And if you think of any kind of great accomplishment, right, think of, say, Michelangelo and his assistants painting the Sistine Chapel, that doesn't happen in a weekend, right? Or Tolstoy writing War and Peace, that doesn't happen over a month-long adventure. Great works take time. And the greatest work that you're engaged in is the work of yourself working on yourself becoming a better person learning the skills consistent with leadership you are your own project I often say with respect to my students that when you think of leadership you are both the potter as well as the clay so you are both the person shaping the object and the object yourself and if any of you have ever done the creative arts and pottery is a good example the first time you sit down at the potter's wheel the work that you do won't look so great. The, the pot that you'll end up taking home from that pottery class won't be particularly impressive. It takes time to perfect any kind of craft. And so insofar as you can kind of think about the goals that you have and think about questions of incremental progress, the point is not that you've perfected what you're doing tomorrow or even next week, but that over time you're moving in the right direction. And if on the one hand you're easily distracted Or if on the other hand, you're easily discouraged, you'll merely turn in circles. You won't make the incremental progress necessary to realize your greatest potential and to ultimately realize kind of that Sistine Chapel or that war and peace that is your own great accomplishment. It is hard to have that level of patience. And I will often tell my students that I think that patience is the most underrated virtue when it comes to leadership. But learning that virtue early, uh, I think, can take you a long way in the process toward becoming a leader. And it's something I encourage my own students to work on cultivating very early on in their own leadership
1: development. Fantastic, John. Thank you so much. And I think um, you're right. The more when I looked, I was just starting to think of what is important at the end of our lives. You know, When we go there and say, what is left? Well, I guess uh, it's not just about the accomplishment of what you achieve that go at the end. But who did you become or who you became along the way? And that's what you really shared. And uh, who did you share that with as well? I think those two, um, that your character prevailed, you made it, you, 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 you lived a life that was worth living. Um, and you, I, I like what you just said, working on yourself, your own project. Um, so, And you're right, if you start to look at it this way, You will start to look at the skills, the areas you want to develop, and you can go one by one, day by day, um, improving that. Uh, And and hopefully, of course, there will be challenges along the way, but um, you can become the masterpiece that God has created you to be. Um, And you have the accelerators, i.e. the technology, which can be used to your advantage versus your distraction. But I agree with you. The world is full of distraction. And... uh, and also temptations as well. I think um, temptations is uh, on every angle. I mean, it's looking at because when you become successful, everybody wants um, your time, your attention. You, I'm sure you experience it yourself. So, how do you decide where to invest your time? What's your? How do you kind of manage those distractions? Because I think that's a that's a, a very um, it may may seem easy for some, but but also could be quite. Uh, um, quite difficult for us.
2: Well, I think uh, what you're really describing are two types of distractions. So let me speak to both of them. The, the <laughs> first is kind of the distraction that can sometimes come with technology and, and just kind of not paying attention to the work that's in front of you. And what I often communicate to my students is that you need to think about your leadership project consistent with the way you think about getting in shape. Right. (laughs) If one desires to get in better shape, just thinking about it uh, won't allow you to do it. And merely going to the gym once or twice won't prove successful. How do you do it? You go each and every day and you follow a practice over a period of time, make a good habit of exercise. Well, making a good habit of not being distracted and staying focused is important as well, too. Let me give you one small example from when I was writing my dissertation we all know how distracting our phones could be. And we all know that if we're sitting somewhere and we begin to lose our train of thought, we end up picking up our phone and scrolling through the latest tweet or the, you know, the latest news on a website. And so I actually started making a practice, this is a very small thing when I was writing my dissertation, is that when I would go to the library, I would go to the library, I would leave my phone behind, and I would actually go to a library where I didn't have internet access and I would be there for a number of hours until I got the 600 words I was aiming for and I wouldn't go home until I was done. So I was forcing myself to not be distracted. Why? Because I knew that I'm a human being and human beings are vulnerable to temptation. So I was trying to narrow the amount of temptation that was in my life and cultivate good practices. And that's the same thing you do if you were looking to exercise and get in shape. So how can you cultivate practices that make you less distracted, allow you to be more focused on the project at hand. The second kind of variety of distraction you're describing is a world where kind of people are always competing for your attention um, and trying to figure out how do you allocate your time. And that's, I think, a project you have to go through over the course of your life. But I think the deeper your sense of self, knowing who you are, what it is you want from the world, what it is you hope to accomplish, the stronger a sense you have on that, the easier it is to make these decisions. We are most distracted when we don't know what we want and we find ourselves bored. But the more that we are committed to a project in our lives that give us incitement, enthusiasm, and meaning, the easier it is to say no because we know what it is we want from life and we know what we can pass up on. So I think having that sense of self, having a sense of the things you care about and are passionate about, if you have that in your life it's it's easier to not be distracted um and to a certain extent easier to say no
1: well th- this is um so important and valuable um skill for everyone to to learn um how to manage that and you're right we're human beings we all have it sometimes we demand it from our children but we don't do it and that's uh, that's i think very important to lead by example um in many of those areas but the the beauty is that um, these we we have so many opportunities today. We can uh, we can make a profound impact um, with and really live that passionate lives uh, and abundance in every area that matters to us uh, personally. And that's and by the way, uh, whoever says that's not possible, I don't believe it, because if God says that, then then I, why should I believe someone else? So I, I, my message is, you can have it all. I have seen people that can have it all. That's your um, spiritual health. That's a, or the, your spiritual growth, your mental health, your physical health, your financials, and your relationships. Wealth. So all of that can you know can happen. The impact you you create, and um, and I'm really inspired to um, to to kind of uh, pursue this and and share that with 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 people and everyone that they encounter because. Um, it's possible, and uh, of course, for me, care is very important. It plays an instrumental role. I'm very um, I honor the work you have done, uh, Jean Paul, for ethical leadership. It's it's fantastic, and really, um, you've committed uh, uh, really a lifelong, you know, such a kind of uh, years of dedication of uh, creating that uh, Jean Paul, as you said, um, that uh, that special uh, masterpiece you're, you're working towards and um what inspired you to do that and uh, um what is your advice now if you look at the other end of the spectrum so of really the current leaders of today those ceos that are right now having to very quickly um adjust uh retained it talent because 40%, as we know, it's the it's really the big resignation we're living right now. Young people don't want to be part of uh, joining companies, want to be working for themselves, or be entrepreneurs. A lot of uh, people, more than 40% said they will be ready to leave within three months. Um, and out of 20 is are, are probably open-minded if you don't keep. So I think it's uh, really a major signal and Corona triggered uh, a lot of these processes. Um what would be your, your advice to the current uh, leaders and CEOs of uh, what could they do different? How could they um, um, make a positive uh, impact to the organization and, and their people?
2: So I, I always tell my students that um, leadership is a human-focused art form. And, and what I mean by that is, and I try to communicate this to them, You know, there are plenty of people in this world who are very happy working at their desk or working in a cubicle or working at a computer screen and not really interacting with other human beings. And that's perfectly fine. We are all different. And there are plenty of people in this world for whom that's where they're most comfortable. But being engaged in leadership means working with other people. It means managing people. And you have to find people interesting and compelling. Why? Because if you don't, leadership will be extremely frustrating. And so I often communicate to my students that insofar as you're engaged in leadership, this people focused art, you have to kind of work with people in a way where you're understanding them, you're connecting to them, you're empathizing with them. Your approach or your orientation is not, say, consistent with uh, the way in which someone who plays chess thinks about the pieces on a chessboard. You're not simply moving pieces around a chessboard within your company, right? You're dealing with people who have their own volition, their own worldviews, their own ways in which they make meaning. And to the degree you can come in tune with that, you can empathize with them, you can understand them, you can not only better connect with them, but you can better lead them. And that's ultimately what you're aiming toward with respect to the art of leadership. And so I think as we go through a time And Marion, you're exactly right, it's a time of great upheaval and discord. A lot of people are leaving the office space, they're they're looking for new things to do. I I think what that speaks to, uh, if you're in a leadership position, is this pressing need to connect with people and understand how their needs may have changed because of the experience of the last year and a half. If you're not doing that as a leader, if you're not checking in, you're not kind of renewing that connection you have with the people around you because you don't only have to connect with them you have to find ways to renew and refresh that connection but if you do that you're going to find ways to troubleshoot their concerns to make sure they're committed to the task at hand and you have to keep that commitment strong in order to be successful in your leadership activities but also to retain the kind of loyalty trust and inspiration all of which are the currency of leadership. So the more that you're checking in and look, it's harder to do today than it arguably ever has been before because so much of our work is going on via Zoom. But if you can find ways to do that and find ways to kind of connect with the people who are part of your organization and renew those relationships, what you'll be able to do is kind of troubleshoot problems before they arise. And that of course is gonna be helpful with respect to retention with bringing in great talent and to making sure that people are insmi- inspired and committed to the process at hand.
1: No, thank you so much um, for that. And that's so important. I, I could not agree more. And uh, this is really uh, a great opportunity as well. I think for many companies and leaders to um, revisit and, and reconnect, but also um, think about the overall uh, philosophy. Are we doing enough? What can we do better uh, continuously for our people, for our community? How can we really um, uh, kind of because it's not it's not just about business. business I believe business is a can, is a, 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 and a great tool for a positive impact to the world. I think it's fantastic of what we can do um, if we have that leadership, that vision of of making uh, the world a better place. And um, uh, it's um, I think it's just a great moment for this uh, uh, change. In looking at really uh, care and what your pursuit for ethical leadership, um, what role care played in your success, Jean-Paul? Well,
2: that's a a great question. So um, for me, I was very fortunate uh, to have wonderful, loving parents and a great group of friends who um, found ways to kind of support me as I've gone along this process But it's important to note, and this is something you well understand, Marian, that care is a two-way street, right? It's not simply something that you are consuming yourself. And in fact, you're generating care and concern by the care and concern you show others. The example that I would give, and maybe this is a lesson uh, that I think might be valuable for people in your audience, is that my mother once told me that, you know, you go to college, you meet all these wonderful people, and then you'll move to different parts of the country and the world. And she said, you know, if those relationships are valuable to you, you have to continue investing in them, right? This is not to say that if you haven't spoken with a friend in five or six years, they won't return your phone call. But the nature of, our, of human relationships to keep them strong, they need a constant kind of refreshing. And so she kind of communicated to me, no matter how busy you get, how ambitious you are, um, how much you're looking to further your career, you have to take time out For these relationships to show that care and concern, or they won't be as strong and meaningful to you as they once were. And so whenever I'm in a city where I know people, I try to take time out and connect with them. I try to be responsive when it comes to email, make time to call individuals. And what that allows me to do is to kind of keep those relationships strong. But care, of course, is a two-way street. And I try to do my part in that process and to kind of Show the people who've cared about me that that care is something I reciprocate.
1: No, thank you so much for that. We have a, a great question here from somebody that uh, highly thinks of you and uh, we both know actually. Uh, Stoyan Yankov is just uh, shared. John, you've worked with uh, President Obama, supporting him on his presidential campaign. What are the, some of the leadership lessons you've learned from him that are perhaps not so obvious to the public?
2: So I think one of the leadership lessons I learned from him while working on the 2008 campaign is uh, something that actually was important to me as well, too, and that is a commitment to empathy. Uh, Barack Obama would always talk about empathy in his writings and his speeches. It's a very important word to him, and it's a word with a very specific meaning. He doesn't just mean kind of showing attention to others, being kind of careful and caring toward them. What he means is also working hard to understand the worlds of other people, understand how their experience is different from yours and showing care and appreciation for that specific experience. And what that requires of you individually is time, attention, and yes, care. It's not just that you're kind to another person or thoughtful toward them. But what you're trying to do is kind of understand their experience, the world that they come from. And that's a way of kind of showing respect to other people around you. And so this is something that Barack Obama talks about a great deal. And I think for him, as someone who has such a distinctive background, his father being African, uh, being black, his mother being white, growing up in very unusual circumstances overseas in Indonesia for a part of his life. I think he led a life where he was very sensitive to kind of differences he'd seen others. And he communicated, I think to all of us who were on a team together, the team that was the 2008 campaign, that we needed to show that same sense of empathy and respect for the experience of others. To me, that's a valuable lesson for life generally, but also an especially important lesson for leadership. Because especially when you're talking about leading complex groups, whether in government or in a company, you're dealing with lots of people who have different backgrounds and different experiences. And to truly connect with them, you have to be willing to ask them questions and learn about where they come from. I think Barack Obama is a wonderful exemplar of that. And it's certainly something I try to do in my life
1: and in my teaching as well. Fantastic. Well, I I also uh, think that I remember back uh, in that time, this was one of the most inspirational campaign that I've and uh, when he became the president, and, and then it was announced. Um, the whole world was in hope, um, and I think it's very much to what you just said. Uh, really, that empathy, that care, ability to understand others and and care for them, of where they come from, what is important to them, um, and hence, obviously, the what we have seen um, that that came out of this. So, it is uh, fantastic lessons, um, you know, for uh not only current CEOs but also uh, future leaders that uh, care and empathy has a huge role to play um in even your own well-being um because a lot of people may be rich financially but they might still be miserable there's a lot of cases of this kind and I think uh some of that has to do with exactly what you just shared that empathy and care of us uh, along the way along the journey um, and talking about really that uh, achieving that um, satisfaction, that uh, well-being, that sense of, hey, I am I feel satisfied with what I do. I'm proud of the things that that we're doing. You know, that, I think that's very important to, um, as you mentioned, take care of yourself. And um, how do you take care of yourself, uh, Jean-Paul? How do you recharge? What What are the things that you do on a daily basis in order to allow you to Have that inspiration and motivation to do the things you do.
2: Well, one thing I do, and and I would say this is probably a bit of a difference from the way I did things when I was, say, 20 years old to today, and it's actually a lesson that I've really tried to take to heart, is that I try to sprint less and jog more. What precisely do I mean by that? You know, when you're sprinting, uh, if you think of, say, Usain Bolt, right? He's someone who runs the 100-meter and the 200-meter dash. They're relatively short distances. And, you know, with all due respect to sprinters, that's a wonderful way, uh, you know, to win a gold medal at the Olympics, perhaps. It's not necessarily the best way to lead one's life. The jogging approach instead is quite different. It is kind of focusing on a goal that's going to take you a little bit of a while and building a kind of healthy rhythm that allows you to get there. Uh, for many years, I was a long-distance runner. Mm. And you know the worst mistake you can make if you're running a marathon, say, is to run as fast as you can straight out of the blocks. Because maybe for the first mile or two, you'll feel great. But by the time you get to about mile 18, it's going to be the worst day of your life. Instead, what you have to do is you have to jog, and you have to think of your training in those ways. So what I try to do is constantly pace myself and to think about what it is I need to do to make sure that I'm successful over the long haul, not just the next 100 yards. And so one of the things I do as part of that, and I'm much better about this than I was when I was 20 years old, is I think about how can I make sure that my health is as strong as possible. And I think one thing we tend to overlook often when you're dealing with people who are very successful is they tend to dismiss sleep, right? You know, the old maxim, I'll sleep when I'm dead. The problem is if you don't sleep, you'll be dead sooner as opposed to later. And so although I didn't sleep very much when I was in high school and college, I try now to be very careful about getting my sleep. It allows me to clear my mind. It puts me in a better mood. It allows me to be far more efficient and to get my work done and to be more thoughtful and frankly, to be a more caring individual. So one of the kind of concrete ways in which I try to pace myself today in addition to trying to maintain my health by eating well or exercising, or reading, connecting with other people, kind of mindfulness, is I try to make sure that I don't actually skimp on sleep. Uh, Because if I do skimp on sleep, I'm more ornery, I'm not as effective, I'm not as efficient, and frankly, I'm not jogging particularly well. And so my goal is to find a way always to kind of pace myself and to maintain my health. And so for me, kind of getting good sleep is
1: one way of doing that. It well, is. Um, I practice that myself, and I, I relate a lot to this. I think it's super important. I do encourage that. I know there are many videos that say that uh, you should, uh, you know, you should not sleep <laughs> if you find your passion, and you know somebody else is uh, is gonna take it away from you. But I guess it depends on the strategy you have. I mean, in some cases, you may um, you may need to. Go in with a few days that you need to accomplish something that is super critical. But overall, in the long run, you you know, if you don't have um, good sleep, you're right. It thinks uh, you you will not be productive. So I think it comes back to uh, your impact and your productivity. And John, what about you personally? Uh, How many hours of sleep do you normally get? uh, Try to try to get. (laughs)
2: <laughs> so, so I'll be very honest with you. When I was in high school and college, I did not sleep much at all. Um, I would sleep only three or four hours a night. And uh, I was pretty miserable. Uh, you know, I always felt that I was sleep deprived. I, I felt like I was kind of a zombie walking through my life. And I, I now try to get nine hours of sleep every night. And I know that if I get nine hours of sleep, I wake up in the morning feeling great. I am tremendously efficient in all of my tasks. I'm a much more pleasant person to be around. There are some people who need less sleep and I'm very envious of those folks who genuinely only need four or five hours of sleep a night. But you know, we all know our own bodies. And for me, at least getting that good sleep allows me to get up and be as efficient as possible. And sometimes people will say to me, well, you know, that's so many hours, don't you feel like you're wasting time? And my response is, well, it's the time that you're awake. How best do you make of that time? For me, at least, if I only get four or five hours of sleep, and sometimes you have to do that. You know, Marion, you shared at the very beginning um, of our time together that I happen to be in Los Angeles today. I, you know, flew last night for a meeting that I have um, today. I can't say that I got a lot of sleep last night. That's all right. That happens from time to time. But I know that if I make a practice of that, I will not be inefficient, I will not be pleasant, I will not be paying attention to details. And that means that the very best won't come out of me in my performance. And so for me, my goal is again about nine hours of sleep if I can possibly get it. Because I know that if I've gotten that sleep, particularly before a big event, a speech that I have to give, important work that I need to do, I will be at my best performance level. And I think that's something that we should all aim for each and every day, you know, feeling that kind of sense of health and and meaning. Um, But also if you're leading people, you need to have that reservoir of patience. And as we all know, if you're sleep deprived, you tend to become a lot less patient. And so for me, that's what I aim for. If I can each and every day, I don't always succeed, but I know that I'm happiest and healthiest if I'm
1: able to get that much sleep in my life. Amazing, John. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's uh. Uh, fantastic you know to and, and typically um, do you wake up like early in, in terms of you what's the typical schedule you have normally when?
2: So I tend to be a late worker. Uh, so a lot of my time when I'm not teaching is spent as a writer mm-hmm. um, And so my best writing hours tend to be late morning, um, early afternoon and late and later in the afternoon. I am not by any means an early morning person. I would much prefer and typically do prefer to find myself going to bed, say, at midnight, one in the morning, and waking up around 10 in the morning and kind of beginning my day. Now, of course, I can't always do that. There are meetings sometimes you have to attend, there's teaching that has to be done. But I know that my kind of natural rhythm is such that if I wake up a little bit later in the morning, go to bed late in the day, I feel a lot better. Maybe that will change over time. I know both of my parents uh, get up a little bit earlier in the morning. Maybe as I get older, that's what I want to do. Um, but in many respects, my schedule looks a lot like a lot of young people who stay up late and uh, get up late as well, too. And for now, at least, that's work for me.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing this, um, your personal uh, schedule and that and how this works for you. Um, John, looking at uh, really the your your privilege and rest to arrive to some of the leading universities of the world and I know um, the way we learn is changing significantly Um, and uh, what is your advice to those institutions universities that are really um, struggling to be honest uh, in today's uh, world not only to attract young people but um, how to really um, develop programs that, uh, that cater for the gen- generation Z and the future. So what is, the, what is your take on the future of learning <laughs> and education, a topic I'm deeply passionate about?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful question. I mean, I think you know, universities always face a challenge <clears throat> that they're run by people who generationally are out of step with their students. Right. If you go to a major university, the people who run the university, they're in their 40s, their 50s, their 60s, sometimes even their 70s. And so they're generationally out of step with people who are 18, 19 or in their 20s if they're graduate students. And so part of the difficulty is that you are trying to understand how to kind of speak to students who are 20, 30, 40 years behind you. Now, that's always a problem. It's been a problem throughout You know human history at least as long as we've had universities but today what's happening is you have a lot of young people who've grown up in a technological world that is very different from their parents and certainly their grandparents and so you have all these university administrators who are trying to figure out to what degree do we need to take advantage of these technological opportunities to change the way that we teach now one of the interesting consequences of covid is that teachers around the world all had to learn very quickly how to communicate just in the way we're communicating right now by using a microphone and a camera and a computer. So they had to get their own education in the last year and a half. And I'm sure anyone who's out there who's taken a class in the year and a half, last year and a half has seen how most uh, professors have actually struggled in this process. But I think that was a, a good positive experience because I think if universities are gonna succeed, Uh, in attracting students and delivering quality education, what they're going to have to figure out is how do our methods of communication have to change? And they're gonna have to change because of technology. And that requires not just learning new technology, right? In the way in which all these professors, I'm included, had to learn how to use Zoom capably a year and a half back, but also learning the ways in which technology will offer new opportunities for communication in ways you just didn't even think of before. It's one thing to say that technology will take what we do in the classroom and bring it into your home. That's great, and that's actually a really remarkable accomplishment. But how can technology change and improve upon the way that we have been communicating as educators for hundreds of years? Are there, are there new things that technology can allow us to do? I think the more that educators and universities are asking those questions, frankly, the better off they are in meeting the very kinds of challenges you're describing
1: absolutely i think it's very uh, interesting what um what is coming on many universities and and also the digitalizing the the process and i think very much is if they're able to individualize um the really the the program or the process of teaching to cater for the individual's needs uh, that individual approach to the student, um, there would be a great breakthrough um, that allows you to do this. So I think uh, you still have a framework, but how do you kind of uh, well, come back to what you come back to what you said earlier that have that interest to, and make an effort to get to know your students like uh, uh, in the campaign and when you see great leaders like Barack Obama, he's, he made an effort to get to know the different groups of people in audience and how to care for them. Um, especially with uh, now online, your audience um, w- is likely to significantly increase. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, you have a very international I mean Harvard is a fantastic example of its own ecosystem that is created. Um, but not every university has that uh, privilege um, to have what they, what they have. Um, and, and I think, um, uh, is there? Do you think there is an opportunity for universities to group together, maybe in clusters or um, as we're seeing more and more like joint degrees and, and some of those? Or is that uh, still um, maybe a, a bit distance in your, in your mind?
2: Well, if you think about the idea of economies of scale and how business tends to work, Normally, you have uh, kind of winners who emerge, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Large scale businesses. If you think, say, for in the United States, uh, the automotive industry, if you go back to, say, the, the teens and the 20s, there were a lot more automotive companies 110 years ago than there are today, right? Where you have Ford, yeah. essentially Ford and GM being the major companies, and now Tesla more recently. The interesting thing about universities is you haven't typically had the same kind of consolidation in the united states there are still hundreds if not thousands of universities uh, that continue to practice the trade of being a university and even though you know a harvard university is well recognized the number of students it services say take for example its freshman class this year which is about 1650 students when i was a student there over 20 years ago it was 1650 students that number hasn't changed very much. Mm. And while it may go up a little bit sometime in the future, I suspect that it will never be 16,500 students or 165,000 students. So on the one hand, I think you're absolutely right. You know What we haven't seen in education is this kind of consolidation. What I will say is with the opportunities of online education, and frankly, some of the forces that we see in the marketplace, I think you could begin to see some of that consolidation or what I think you could see, and I think this is already beginning to happen, is major kind of players in the education sphere, major universities will use online education as a way of connecting with more students than they ever have before. Take again the case of Harvard University. I don't expect when I go back to Harvard University for my 60th reunion, uh, hopefully I'll be here long enough for my 60th reunion, that suddenly the number of students who are there will be 10 or 20 times what they were when I was there. Maybe there'll be a 10% increase, but these are the students who are on campus. By contrast, I fully expect that when I come back for that 60th reunion, the number of students who are online and participating in Harvard through online education, and that's already beginning to happen, but it will just explode. And so I think what you'll actually begin to see are a lot of major universities finding ways to accommodate a lot more students by that kind of online interface so it, it i don't know that it will be consolidation per se but what you'll have are the emergence i think of certain universities that begin to service a lot more students than we've seen
1: certainly in the past
2: i expect that to happen i think it's happening already and i think that will
1: only continue to grow in the future fantastic and john um there's a couple of more questions that I want to address with you. One of them is related to uh, what is your vision in terms of a uh, brighter and better world? Uh, uh, what is your kind of both short term and, and long term?
2: Well, that's, that's a great question. You know, something that I often try to give to my students in terms of advice, um, and, and maybe I'll connect kind of short term and long term, uh, is that one, I think that people are beginning to realize with respect to technology, that it can be a blessing, but if we see some of the kind of problems around mental health or some of the problems of social media, it can be a burden as well too. Mm. And I think in the short term, something that I'm hopeful about is maybe not fast enough, but we're beginning to learn those lessons to make the best use of technology. If you take, for example, the cell phones we all have in our pockets, it's amazing the kind of technology that's right at our fingertips. And if we put that technology to best use, It can open extraordinary doors for all of us. Of course, if we don't put it to best use, a lot of problems can come in its wake. And I think we're quickly, um, maybe not quickly enough, but quickly beginning to realize that we need to change our interaction with technology to make sure that we get the kind of best use of it. I think that's beginning to happen. And in the short term, I have a good deal of confidence in that. With respect to the longer term, I think something that we all need to think about more, because this is part of what technology tends to do, is technology allows us to create lots of what I would call shallow relationships.
1: Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. If
2: you think of, you know, the thousands of Facebook friends or people you know on LinkedIn, and that's that's fine to kind of have all of those shallow relationships. But I think that, you know, part of the project of living a good life. <clears throat> is not just having a large network of people you can connect with, which is something that brings a lot of joy to my life when I travel around the world and meet new people. But how do you also allocate the time, attention, and care in order to create deep relationships? Because as we all know, deep relationships, those friendships we've had for years, the people we care about, members of our family, in many respects, those bring some of the most valuable and irreplaceable kind of elements to our life. And sometimes, you know, if we're busy tweeting all of the time or checking Facebook, we're not tending to those relationships. So I'm also hopeful that as in the short term, we're learning how to better interact with technology. Over the long term, we're going to revisit what it means to create those deep relationships and tend to them. I don't know that we've done that enough, uh, frankly, uh, you know, so many of us over the last 15 years because of all this new technological distraction. But over the longer term, I'm hoping that we're kind of returning to that. And what that will allow is for kind of a deeper and more meaningful engagement in the human world around
1: us. In many ways, I feel that um, going back to our roots is uh, because we are, as human beings, we are not, um, we are social. We, we thrive when we are together, when we have the connection family. And our technology on one end has given us access to many, as you said, relationships, but they're shallow, they're not deep. And I think if we combine that and blend with uh, the deep relationships and able to manage that well, um, I'm very optimistic about a future uh, and the way you describe it. I think it's uh, fantastic what's coming. I think a lot of uh, goodness, especially after uh, these difficult times in the last couple of years, whenever there is a great loss, there's a great uh, um, goodness coming to compensate for that as well. So... Um, I'm really uh, looking forward to what's coming next, Uh, but Jean-Paul, we're always kind of really interested in sharing something that you haven't shared before, Um, something that uh, uh, you you would like to share with our audience.
2: Sure, well, I'd love to share um, a a little trick that I've long used in my classrooms, but I've never uh, shared publicly before. So I think, as as we all know, actually, when we uh, give uh, public addresses, when you're speaking before an audience, it's a very kind of nerve wracking experience, especially when you're younger. And when I started teaching at Harvard, I was only 27 years old. I was incredibly nervous. And my biggest fear was that when I would start talking in front of this audience, um, I would speak at such a speed, it would seem strange. No one could follow what I was saying, and it would give a sense of my nerves. And so I started a practice, which I've always done when I teach, because even though I'm more comfortable with public speak- speaking, certainly than I was when I was 27, and I've spoken before a lot of audiences, you still get a little bit nervous when you get up there in front of people. I always take a, a post it note and I write slow in capital letters with a marker and I will put it at the very top left corner of the page. And that does two things for me. One, it reminds me that I need to make sure that I speak slowly and clearly. But two, it kind of makes me laugh a little bit as well too. It puts me a little bit at ease because it's something I've now done for about 16 years. And it reminds me of all the experiences I've had, all of the successes I've had in public speaking and and some of the failures as well, too. And it puts me at ease. It, It leads me to smile a little bit before I start. So it not only allows me to kind of slow down in the public speaking I do and really focus on the project at hand, it also puts me at ease a little bit as well, too. And as anyone knows who's done public speaking, the more you feel at ease, the better you're able to communicate. So it's a small thing I've done, a kind of funny thing I've done. Um, but something I certainly haven't shared before. So I'm delighted to kind of share it with
1: your audience. Fantastic, Joe. Thank you so much for that. What a great lesson to public speaking, guys. So, well, um, I wanted to take really sincerely honor of the work you do. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today, John, and, and really spending your own time and getting early for us. Um, uh, really, it means a lot and for all the audience for years to come, in fact. And uh, wanted to wish you um, a fantastic uh, trip in L.A., but above all, God bless you and your family.
2: Well, thank you so much, Marion. It's been such a pleasure having this conversation with you and talking about leadership, something I'm passionate about, and I'm delighted that I've had a chance to connect with you as well as your audience. So
1: thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. If where could people find you if they're interested, you know, to invite you on events or other things, or really some of the books that you have. What's the best way to get in touch?
2: So the best way to get in touch is I am on Twitter. It's the one form of social media I do participate in at JP Rollert R O L L E R T. Um, you can also find my faculty webpage at the University of Chicago. Um, and also, you can always reach out to me, my last name, Rollert, R-O-L-L-E-R-T, at gmail.com. Always delighted to hear from people and connect with them.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for being a leader who cares, John. Take care. and Thank you, Miriam. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. Find out more about the Leaders Who Care across the main social media channels. And help us spread the care culture in your own community. First, by taking care of yourself, and then of others around you. It all starts with one person, one act of kindness. What is one thing you can do today to make your environment better? Stay inspired and stay caring. See you next time.